Good morning. It is a good morning. It may be cloudy outside. I, I cannot explain to you the rain thing. That's just, uh, it's June, right? It was like 115 degrees last year, and now it's gross. If you're a motorcycle rider, I'm sorry. Um, I've been dealing with it too. Sometimes you just gotta ride in the rain. This is where you gotta do it. All right. Have you ever been in the middle of an argument? <laughs> yes. No. Well, we've just started one. Um, and as you're going, you start to realize that the other person that you're arguing with might be right. <laughs> but you just keep arguing anyway, right? Uh, I have done this. I have, it's probably happened a lot. Um, you know, the argument's starting to get intense. And you start realizing, I, th I think this person may have a better point than I do. But you're in too deep, am I right? You're in too deep, right? And so you use the classic argument technique for such situations. You just increase your volume, right? <laughs> Seen it many times, I call it argument by volume. When evidence doesn't work, volume is right there for you, right? The more the other person makes their point, the louder you get, because loud means passionate. It means you're probably right. It's not very effective, actually, for making a point, but it can be a successful way to get somebody to stop arguing with you if you get loud enough. Uh, in fact, if you do it often enough, what I've found is it can be a very effective way of getting people to not want to be around you at all. Um, so the question is, why, why do we do argument by volume? Why do we push back even when we have some sense that we may be wrong? Uh, I think that there is a combination of two things that are really behind a lot of just so much sin. And that is pride, and then that just simple one that is we want what we want. We want to get what we want. And so if we're arguing for something that we want, we're going to argue for it whether it makes sense or not. Right, right or wrong, never in doubt. Talk to any politician, you'll find that. Now this may not seem like profound news to you. You may be like, yeah, I know all of this. Well, fine. Uh, but it's actually profoundly important. And the reason is, is that we need to understand why people are this way if we want to be effective in understanding ourselves and our neighbors. And when I use the word neighbors here, I'm using it in the biblical sense, meaning everyone, not just the people who live next door to you, who these days you probably don't even know. Uh, I mean everyone. Uh, these are the people that Jesus told us to love as ourselves, Go to Luke 2, 10, 25 through 29. It says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up. Never is going to be good for the lawyer. I just, if you've read the Bible, it's never going to be good for the lawyer. A certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Lawyers testing God. Oh, that's great. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered rightly, do this and you will live. Of course, knowing he's not doing this, right? But he, this is the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, which lawyers do a lot, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? But Jesus goes on to tell him the story of the good Samaritan, uh, this Samaritan man who helped while the religious Jewish folks walked by. And of course, at that time, Jewish people were not big fans of Samaritans. And so the idea that a Samaritan would be your neighbor who you're supposed to love as yourself, they didn't like that. They didn't like that. But we, you, are called to love your neighbor as yourself, even the one you're arguing with. 
We're specifically called to make disciples for Christ. We're called to preach the gospel, to lead people into the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. If we're to do that passionately and effectively, we have to understand ourselves. We have to understand our neighbors. It means we have to understand why we have, as human beings, this temptation to ignore the truth when it gets in the way of our pride or when it gets in the way of what we want, sometimes when it just gets in the way of us being able to fit in. There's a whole lot of people right now who are obsessed with believing falsehoods that actually hurt people because it is the way to fit in and not get in trouble with culture. Okay? There's a lot of that that goes on. Why? Why do we push it away? Why do we not want to believe the truth? We've got to understand that. We also have to understand that sometimes we begin, to be, we begin as humans to believe our own false arguments if we push them long enough. So a person who starts to realize they may be wrong in that argument, as they push forward and they continue to fight, eventually as they do that enough, they start to believe the false thing and no longer see their own error in it. We have probably all done that in justifying our own sin. Or let's just say, I have done that in justifying my own sin. Uh, I want to do things even though I know I shouldn't do them and I eventually find a way to justify them. I have been overweight for a long time. Um, and at the end of the day, I have to come before the Lord to repent because I realize that what I do is I just justify being unhealthy. One bad meal at a time, one day without enough physical activity at a time. When it's just onesie twosie, it doesn't seem that bad. And then I weigh 300 pounds and go, oh, that can't be right, right? It's never actually said 300. It's like 297. And then I just stop going on that thing, right? Um, not right now, though. I'm, I'm down. I'm, I'm lower than that. Um, I struggle with this. You probably struggle with that or some other problem. And you justify. And as you justify, it becomes less and less of an issue to you. As you sort of suppress the thing, it sort of starts to not bother you as much. Where this becomes the biggest problem is when people argue against the truth of the scriptures, the truth of Jesus Christ, and the truth of the gospel. Because when they do those things, when they argue against those things, they're arguing against their own salvation. They're arguing against the only thing that can save them. And if they do it enough and long enough and well enough, they start to not even hear the gospel anymore. They start to not even hear the gospel anymore. It's become something that they've spent enough time arguing against or pushing away that it no longer even has an effect on them anymore. Now, I have children, two of them, so I know what it's like to have somebody who doesn't want to listen, who thinks they know better, regardless of how wise my counsel is. And sometimes it is. If someone wants to do something his or her own way, they generally are going to do it that way. That's what they tend to do. They do what they want to do, no matter how much you show them that they shouldn't. You have to understand that about people if you're going to be effective in bringing the only news that can save them from this wicked world. You have to understand that about people. This is what the scriptures are telling us in Romans 1.18, which we've, which we've studied. It says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And ladies, they're not talking about just men. That's men and women, okay? Like, yeah, I'm unrighteous men, I know about that. I do too. <laughs> I know a few unrighteous women. 
I can start naming names. No, I'm not going to do that. We all are, right? We all are. Unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I've never seen a time since I've been alive where there is more of that happening than now. Where it's like, here's the truth. And it's like, no, 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 no. We don't want that to be true. So we'll just say it's not. We'll just say this is true. It's, it's crazy. We're like, uh, we're destroying the young people and frankly, some of the old people because they're not, they're, they have nothing, no ground to stand on to understand what's true and what's not true because what's true is just whatever the culture decides to say is true. And that changes. I don't know if you've noticed that. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We know that people do that. The scriptures tells us, tell us clearly that we do that, that we ourselves have done it and that people do it. But what we don't always think about is how many ways they have found to do it. They have devised all kinds of ways to feel justified about suppressing or holding down the truth. If you're going to be an effective person at taking their weapons out of their hands in terms of suppressing the truth, you've got to understand them. You've got to understand them if you're going to help them to face the truth. And if you don't help them face the truth, you are not living out the Great Commission. If you don't help them face the truth, you are not allowing God to use you to bring people into life. So you have to understand that. And if you don't understand this, you will be frustrated a lot as you take the saving grace and peace and love of the gospel to those who need to hear it. You just won't understand why they just won't listen. Now, we've been studying the book of Romans for a number of weeks. I think this is week 12. That's what it says on my notes here. And we're now in a section I've been calling the gospel argument. Okay, this is a long section. It starts basically halfway through the first chapter of Romans 1. It's going to go all the way through the end of Romans 8. And so it's a long section. We're going to be there for a little while. Um, this is the good news. This is where the, the scripture is laying out the good news. The gospel of God. Showing that all men and all women and all children and all times and all places need the grace of God through Jesus Christ. There is nobody who is outside of this. Everyone needs it. It shows us who we are as saved believers in God. It shows us that we have a hope and a future. Salvation, eternal life, judgment of this fallen world. And it shows us that all of that is through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Because he died for you and he rose again, which is our hope that we also will be resurrected to be with him. If we don't understand that, how are we going to be effective at preaching it? So we're going through it, and it's going to take a while. Now today, we're going to get into a particular section. I want to concentrate on just a couple of things in it. So if you have a Bible, there, these ones are in the back of the seats in front of you. If you want to use one of these, that's fine. If you don't have a Bible at home, or you have just used it so much that you can no longer read it or something like that, please take one of these with you. This is our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God in your home. And it's a gift. You don't owe us any money. We are not gonna, there's no time in this service where I'm going to ask you for money. If, for those of you who are new, if you're wondering when that comes, when's the time come when he asks for money? That's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that. Um, we just, we, we basically just steal information when you fill out those cards and we just, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> kidding. You're like, oh, don't do that. No. God doesn't need your money. In case you're wondering about that, when we, when we do talk about tithing, we do talk about giving, it's not because God needs your money. It's about you. It's about you. That's between you and him. 
Okay, we're going to read Romans 3, uh, 21 through 26 together. Let's pray as we get into the Word of God. Father, I thank you for your Word. God, that we have the honor that we get to sit here and read your words that you've given to us. We don't have to be alone wondering where you are. You've spoken clearly through your word, and I pray that you would be in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would teach us as we get into your word. I thank you for all these people. I pray for those who cannot be here today. Pray for those who are watching online or who can't even do that. Pray for Larry and Diane Hill. Some of our others who are experiencing sickness, who are experiencing pain, who are going through things, that you would be with them, and that you would refresh them with your word this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the scripture in your name. Amen. All right, let's read some Bible. That's what we're here to do. It says this, Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, because remember the law means you're dead. Apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference meaning Greek, Jew, none of that matters. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me, that's everyone. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, it's a fun word, by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is an amazing passage because it's showing us, A, that we can be saved because God in his righteousness, his righteousness, not ours, because in his righteousness he died for us. He rose again because he's so good and he loves us so much that he paid the price of our rebellion and sin on the cross. If anyone wants to tell you that the cross means anything less than that, they are lying to you. The price was demanded because of our sin. And because you couldn't pay it, God himself paid it for you. That is what happened. The cross is not about anything less then propitiation, the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people and the perfect Lamb of God sacrificing himself for you and me. It's an amazing thing. He is the loving, perfect sacrifice for our sin. And by his stripes, we are healed. And we can actually be justified before God. You and all the sin that you've committed can actually be justified before God because he paid for our justification. It's an amazing thing. Now, the part of this scripture we are going to work through and study today is the words that describe the person who has this hope of salvation in God. There's, there's some words that describe this person. The person who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I recommend circling the following words in this section. Okay, These are the ones that I want you to circle in that little section. First one is the words faith in Jesus Christ. If you write in your Bible, I'd circle that. Okay? The second one, right after that, is the word believe. Believe, says all who believe. And then the last one at the end of that section that we read is faith in Jesus. This is really important. There's actually a huge theological debate about that term, faith in Jesus, and what does it mean and so on. I think it's pretty obvious what it means, but we'll, we'll get into it a little bit. It is the person who has faith in Jesus, who believes, who has faith in Jesus Christ, who is justified before God. The person who does not have faith in Jesus Christ is not justified before God, but is still under sin and under judgment. 
That's the reality. That's why it's laid out so clearly here so that you can understand, so that you can come to Jesus and have faith in him. But what does faith in Jesus mean? Ultimately, it means those who believe. The Greek word for faith is the word pistis. (laughs) Um, I just can get out of the way. The word for believe is pistuo. You like that? Uh, The word pistuo, which is believe, is from the root pistis, which is faith. Okay, and that's important that they're connected to one another, because you can't believe anything without faith. You can't believe anything without faith. Anyone who tries to tell you that you can believe certain things without faith does not understand faith. You can say, well, I can touch this, right? I can feel it. I can smell it. I can taste it if I wanted to. I'm not going to do that for you. This is on video. (laughs) But I still have to have some faith, at least some faith, less faith for this than some other things, but I could be asleep. I could be a brain floating in the air. We could be in the matrix. Ooh. Take some faith to believe anything. Anything, okay? Now, there are two ways in which faith and belief in Christianity is attacked. And I want to focus on that for us to understand. This is so important. As you evangelize, as you bring the good news to people, as you make disciples for Christ, it's so important that you understand minimally these two ways that we're going to talk about that the idea of faith in Jesus Christ, that the idea of believing on God for salvation is attacked. Okay, Two ways. You're likely going to run into people who will argue against the saving grace of Jesus based on these attacks on belief and faith. Okay? Now, we're about to get philosophical. And whenever we get philosophical, I feel like I have to give an explanation for why we do this. And the first reason is, when I say philosophical, I mean we're going to get a little deep. We're going to have to understand things that are a little difficult. And the reason we do this, a couple of reasons. One, I think you're all very smart. I, I actually think that you are. And it's not because I know you all. It's because I know the one who made you all. Okay? You were made in the image and likeness of God. He gave you a mind. He intends for you to use it. We are here to study the word of God. Okay? Not just the hugging and the singing and the rest. That's all awesome. But all of that comes because we understand the word of God. To understand the word of God, we have to understand. So one of the reasons is because your mind is valuable, and I believe that every one of you is intelligent, is smart, is capable of not only understanding the scripture, but putting it into practice. Okay? The other reason, really kind of the main reason why this matters, is because it is our job as elders at Acts Church to equip you, the saints. You are the saints, and we are too. But we are to equip you to preach the gospel to your neighbors, that is, to everyone. You need to be equipped. You need to understand what you're dealing with. If you are going to bring the people of this world to a place where they can hear and understand the gospel so that you can fulfill the Great Commission, you have to understand the devices and the ploys of the enemy. And if you don't, you will just not be effective. And by the way, the enemy is not your neighbor. We get it. We've gotten in this place. It's a very dangerous place in society where there's a side here and a side there and a side over here and a side over there. And and people have kind of put themselves into tribes. And the people in this tribe, they don't like the people in that tribe. The people in that tribe, they don't like the people in that tribe. And this tribe thinks that tribe wants to ruin their way of life. And that tribe thinks that tribe wants to ruin their way of life. And that tribe just wants to do crazy things over there and whatever. And what's happened is we've created this us-them 
enemy mindset. These people are not your enemies. They are not. They are people created in the image and likeness of God. They have been deceived by the enemy. You need to understand that. You are to love them. The enemy is Satan. He's a liar. He's a father of lies. He's very good at spreading lies that people end up believing, oftentimes because they want to believe. Their own pride and the desire to do what they want makes it easy for them to buy certain lies. But you aren't to hate them or see them as your enemies. You are to love them. And if they are your enemies, in fact, well, then, of course, it's even easier. Jesus was very clear. Love your enemies. So you are to love them. But some of them are critics of the gospel. One of my professors in law school used to tell us, you must not accept the assumptions of your critics. And that's how he talked. He was a very, very dapper fellow. He wore a bow tie. Um, ah, great guy. Great guy. Ended up becoming a Catholic. I don't know. It's, there's some issues there. But <laughs> what he meant, <laughs> please don't anybody walk out, okay? It's fine. What he meant is that when someone makes an argument, they make certain assumptions, okay? And they base their argument on those assumptions. And you, as a person, have to deal with, analyze, and possibly attack and take apart the assumptions that underlie, that are underneath, implicit in the argument that you're hearing. Do not accept the assumptions of your critics. If you want to be effective at speaking the truth, you must understand the assumptions of the people that you're talking to or you're evangelizing to. You have to understand it. In the case of Christ followers, following Jesus in the Great Commission, I would say we do not accept the assumptions of critics of the gospel. We will not accept their assumptions. And the reason we don't accept those assumptions is because we love them. Because God loves them. That's why we spend time trying to understand these things so we can be more effective in these people who we are called to love as ourselves in bringing them to know Jesus Christ. And it's him who does it. But you need to do the work to be effective. And it draws you closer to him. It's, it's amazing stuff. We're to love our critics. These are people made in the image and likeness of God. And we are called to make them disciples of Jesus Christ, period. I don't care what they believe or which person they voted for or which. Look, even Duck fans fall under this. <laughs> Am I right? All right, good. Even, even Duck, I mean, Cougars, you know, but look, everyone is to be loved. I, I don't know, the Ducks beat the Huskies like every year. So this is all nonsense that I keep talking about. But everyone, we're supposed to love them. We're supposed to love them. If we're going to evangelize, we can't just do it by saying, Here, hey, believe God. Okay? You have to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3. We're going to read verses 14 through 16. It says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. I want to start with that. We're in a time where... Those who want to talk about this, the scripture, the Bible, those who want to talk about Jesus are under threat of being called all kinds of things. Hateful, bigoted, you name it, right? Y'all are on the wrong side of history. There's only one that's on the right side of history. That's the one who made history. That's Jesus Christ, okay? He's the one, all the rest of us have made all kinds of mistakes. But if you want to preach this, you are under their threats. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid. Do not cower to the Twitter mob. 
You've got to be strong for something. And yeah, it's going to cost you. I'm not going to tell you it's not going to cost you. Back in the day, you could be a Bible person and it didn't cost you a thing. Maybe some relationships if you were too fanatical. It's going to cost you now. If you're on public education, if you're on public anything, there's a time that's going to come where you will either be moved out or your conscience will not allow you to stay. That time will probably come. Do not be afraid. The one who made you knows how to take care of you. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Mm. And always be ready. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason. Anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. With meekness and fear. In other words, power under control. Fear of God. That means we don't go in and start yelling at people and say, you sinner going to hell, blah, blah, blah. believe the gospel, turn or burn. Blah. That's not meekness and fear. That's anger. And there's a lot of spit involved I've seen with some of those guys. Which seems unsanitary, right? I mean, I don't think we all need to wear masks right now, but I mean, I'm not going to spit on you. Maybe you. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. I'm not. Meekness and fear. Having a good conscience. Because then when they say, this person is an evildoer, this person is a bigot, this person is this, this person is that, they will be ashamed because the truth is, is that your conduct will show not that you hate these people or those people or that you're on the wrong side, but that in fact you love them so much that you're willing to speak the truth to take them out of lifestyles that lead to death instead of life. And by the way, those lifestyles are all lifestyles that do not involve and, and are not defined by faith in Jesus Christ. You could be like, oh, he's talking about this lifestyle, that's just hell. Nope, all of them, all of them lead to death, except the life of a Christ follower who is saved and redeemed, not because they're good, but because he's good. We have to be ready. We are called to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. We have to be able to give reasons to defend the gospel. That means we have to be prepared for the arguments of the critics of the gospel. That means we have to understand why and how people suppress the truth, hold down the truth in unrighteousness. So we're going to look at that a little bit. You have to understand something. We have answers. We have answers for everything that we believe. From the truth of God as creator of the universe, to the truth of God as our redeemer, to the truth of the word of his Bible, to the truth of the resurrection to the truth that we will have eternal life for those who have faith in Christ and believe in him. But the critic of the gospel does not believe, but not because the truth can't be seen or known, but because of their own pride and the selfish desires as they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. If a person has heard the gospel and rejected it, they did not reject it because it was not true. They rejected it because they did not want it to be true. You have to understand that. That's clear from the scriptures. They reject it because they do not want it to be true. Because the gospel has implications for every person's life that will transform the life of any believer. And transformation, I don't know if you know this, but it can be painful and glorious. Well worth it. Worth it. We've got to understand what faith and reason and belief are 
in order to deal with the assumptions of the unbeliever who is a critic of the gospel. You have to understand those things. There was a time when, this is kind of interesting, that a lot of things are changing like this. There was a time when, I don't know that this sermon would have been needed to be preached. Because if I said, do you believe in this thing or believe in that thing? Everybody was like, yeah, I understand what that means. But what happens over time is things that were easily understood in the past have now become complicated by the devil. <laughs> so that you have to explain even things that didn't used to have to be explained. But that's where we are. That's where we are. You have to be able to explain because the assumptions of the critics of the gospel will start with what, the, what you believe and the fact that believing it is meaningless. I'll, I'll explain that. There, I said there are two ways in which faith and belief in Christianity are attacked that we want to focus on. So here are the two ways. First, there is a way of thinking that divides the things people can know what you can know about or what you can believe into two groups. And it puts Christians in the group that can be ignored. Their beliefs can be ignored. I'll explain that in a second, Lord willing. Number two, there is a way of thinking that values all thoughts equally without the need for proof or reason. You believe what you believe. He believes what he believes. She believes what she believes. It's all the same. doesn't matter about evidence and reason. It's just you and your own thing. Okay, so let's begin by studying the first assumption. The two groups of people that are, that, I'm sorry, the two groups of people divide people into, that's been referred to by others as the two-story view of knowledge or the two-story view of truth. And it's pretty simple, really. Uh, the idea is that there's things that we can know and there's things that we cannot know. Okay? The things that we can know, they go on the bottom story like a two-story house. The bottom story is the things that we can know, and the top story are things that we can't really know. Okay? And if you have a type of belief that goes in the top story, what you can do is you can just ignore it. You don't have to engage it at all because it's the type of thing you can't know. So what's on the bottom story? Well, science and history and math. And usually, for people who believe this, whatever else they believe is on the bottom story. On the top story, we have things like religion and justice and love and morality. Those are things that we can't know about, according to the people who have this view. We can know about science. We can argue about science through reason, right? It can be proven or disproven. But we can't reasonably argue about whether there is such a thing as actual truth or love or justice or God or morality because we can't prove those things through reason. That is the assumption that these people have. Many critics of the gospel go around with this assumption. They may not even realize that they think this way. They just carry it with them. They've caught it like they catch a cold. It's just a worldview. So it's an assumption when they talk about faith in God. The, the assumption comes before the conversation. So when you start talking about faith in God, it automatically in their mind is second story stuff. So not only do they not need to believe it or even engage with it, the fact that you believe it is meaningless. The word believe and faith in this context is meaningless to them. They'll often say things like, Christianity is a matter of personal faith. And by personal faith, of course, they mean something that you believe without evidence. Right? That you believe on something other than evidence. It's not a reasonable belief. Okay? They use the word faith to mean things that we believe when we shouldn't. <laughs> things, they, use the word, they use the same word, faith, for your belief in Christ that they would use for a child's belief in Santa Claus. 
okay? That's the way they think about it. Faith is something that you just, you've decided, the child believes in Santa Claus because it feels good to believe in Santa Claus that's going to bring you gifts. You believe in Jesus because you can't really handle life on your own, right? That's the way that they think, and that assumption comes in. What you have to understand about assumptions is they come before the argument. So when you start talking, they've categorized you. They've categorized your faith as something they don't really have to listen to. Now, the view is complete and utter nonsense for a number of reasons. So let's, let's, let me give you a couple of them. One reason is that no one actually lives this way, okay? No one lives thinking there is no such thing as morality or love because they're on the second story and so we can't know anything about them. If you're wondering whether the person who acts this way really believes that, just steal their wallet or their girlfriend. You'll find out they believe in morality and love real quick, okay? They believe in it just as much as they believe in math. And they're a lot more passionate about it than quadratic equations, which I learned what those were this week. So that was good. Or relearned. I don't think I ever knew. I cheated a lot. Did I say that out loud? Oops. No. My wife is a math teacher, so mostly to redeem me. Anyway. The other reason that it's nonsense is that evidence, whether it is evidence for history or science or math or morality or God or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is evidence. It is what it is, okay? The question is not what kind of thing we're talking about and can we categorize it into things we don't have to believe or things we do have to believe. The question is, is the claim that's being made a claim that has evidence or not? That's it. That's the only thing that matters. The claim that Abraham Lincoln lived is exactly like the claim that Jesus Christ lived. And the evidence that you would need would be the same kind of evidence. It's not like, well, we're talking about Abraham Lincoln, we look at this kind of evidence. When we're talking about Jesus, that goes in the floaty category. No, he either lived or he didn't live. There's either historical evidence or there's not. The resurrection of Jesus Christ itself is either a historical fact or it is not. And it would be proven by the same ways that we look at any historical fact. And if it is not a historical fact, we are wasting our time. Evidence is evidence is evidence. The claim that Murder is morally wrong is just like the claim that my grandfather clock is wrong. Each claim either does or does not have evidence for its truth. That's the way it is. How do I prove that my grandfather's clock is wrong? Well, I show what the real time is based on the evidence of what the real time is, and then I do whatever. How do I show that murder is wrong? I show by the actions and by the behaviors and by the way that people are and by the law of God and how it works and who God is and so on. It's all the same. It's evidence or it's not evidence. You cannot categorize things you cannot assume, make an assumption that categorizes certain things out of the realm of knowledge before we even start talking. What you will find is the person who believes this way will not even feel the need to engage in a discussion about the truth of the gospel at all. Because it's over there in that upper story. We don't talk about those things. We don't have to. They simply call belief in God a faith belief, by which they mean it's not a real belief, and they ignore it because they've defined faith as belief without evidence. But faith is not belief without evidence. As I told you earlier, the word for belief in the Bible comes from the root word for faith. They're connected. We believe based on evidence, right? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. You believe in gravity? Probably. We're not floating, right? Can you see it? No. So what is your belief in gravity? A faith belief, right? 
Maybe you believe in something different, but if you do, it's a faith belief. There's no such thing as blind faith in the scriptures. You need to understand this. There is no such thing as blind faith in the scriptures or a faith that only applies to you. That's not a thing. There is faith based on evidence. That's why we have this, and that's why we have God creating the world, showing us evidence. Tiffany and I are always, we're watching TV, and we saw this thing, these, these turtles, right? And it's like they're born with this, some sort of mineral in their brain that basically gives them a map of the earth so they can come back to the same beach where they were born to lay eggs. And I thought, isn't evolution wonderful? There is so much evidence of the creativity and genius beyond anything we could think of who God is. There is so much evidence of it. There is so much evidence for God. We, are, we do not believe based on no evidence. We believe based on a whole lot of it. People who choose not to believe in God are unbelievers because they refuse to fairly listen and engage with the evidence for Christianity. And this often happens these days because they believe they don't have to because of these assumptions that they're carrying around. You have the obligation to explain your faith and your belief in God and explain that they're just like their belief in gravity. Beliefs based on evidence. Let me tell you what happens when you accept the assumptions of your critics because I've seen this, okay? If the critics of the gospel have their assumptions and you start to accept them, you start to sound like a Christian version of them. I'll tell you exactly what I mean. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this or heard someone say something like this? My faith in God is a personal faith that works for me. That is a person who has accepted this assumption. That they have literally accepted the assumption of their critics and put their faith in the second story as something that you can take or not take. As if there's a buffet of beliefs that you can decide which one you believe, but there's no way to prove it. It's a personal belief. That's the two-story view of knowledge. The idea is that the subjective thing that a person happens to believe is what they believe, and other people are welcome to believe what they want. Let me tell you something. The truth of Christianity works for you because it works. Not because it works for you. Because it works. Because it's true for all people at all times and all places, period. It's true because it's true. It applies to everyone. There is no liberty to deny that, to deny the truth of the gospel and have no consequences. There are, in fact, very severe consequences for denying the truth of the gospel. It's the power of God to save and to bring life to the dead. Do not accept the assumptions of the critics of the gospel. Make them face the evidence. It's your job to point out that they're carrying this assumption. It's your job to understand that you need to point out and then take apart that assumption. They likely believe in all kinds of things that are just like religion. Not likely, they do. You need to point that out. And that's just to get started. That's just to have a place to even talk about the gospel. Don't let your neighbors suppress the truth and unrighteousness without ever having to face the truth of the gospel because they believe they don't even have to listen to it. Make sure that they understand that if they reject it, they're not rejecting it because it actually is a non-evidence faith belief, but they're rejecting it because they're unwilling to listen to the truth because they don't want to. 
because they have a false assumption that belief in God is second story stuff. You have to blow that assumption up. I don't know, it's more work than it used to be when you could just go kind of do the Romans road thing. Now you've got to do this whole thing before you can even get to the gospel. It's to show that the gospel is something that should even be listened to, that the gospel is on the same level as science or history or any of those things. People have been lied to, and you are the Christ follower in your neighbor's life who has the truth. You are. Be looking around for somebody else. You are the Christ follower in your neighbor's life who has the truth. Please don't talk about your faith. Please, if if anything, at least don't do this. Do not talk about your faith, which is a belief based on evidence, as is written in the book of Acts, based on many infallible proofs. Do not talk about it as if it was some personal preference of yours, like you like chocolate better than strawberry ice cream. It's not. It's true. I'm going to have to run out of time here, so I'm going to rock through here a little bit. Uh, quickly on the other assumption, it's the you-do-you assumption, okay? This is one a lot of people are carrying around. It's really kind of flowed out of the two-story view of truth, but then it's just kind of gotten blown the whole thing up and like, I just believe whatever I want to believe, you believe whatever you want to believe, and you just do you, and I'll just do me, and we're all fine. The problem with that, of course, is it allows Hitler to believe what he believes, Right? They don't, if you ask them whether they think that, you know, racism or child abuse is okay, they're like, well, of course not. But you just said, you do you and I do me. And so if that guy wants to do that, why are you upset with him? And they go, no, no, no. And they change it and they go, well, you do you as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. The problem is they don't give you any basis for why their view of you do you would be any better than the other guy's view of you do you who says, yeah, you should hurt other people, right? They're not grounded in anything. They're just standing in the air. They've got nothing grounding their belief. The objection here is pretty obvious. No one believes that. No one believes that everyone should just do what they feel like, right? They don't believe people should be racist and child abusers and murderers and whatever. They just want to do what they want to do. And it's your job to point that out to them. You like the you do you because it lets you do you rather than be responsible to God. That's why you like that belief, That's why you carry into it the assumption that Christianity is just me doing me rather than God objectively saying what all of us need to believe. You gotta gotta knock this. This one's one's so easy to knock out, but you gotta first see that it's their assumption and then you gotta blow it up so you have a place for the gospel. Right? Right? You cannot let people feel justified in rejecting your evangelism because they believe that it is something they don't have to listen to. You got enough work for you once they believe they have to listen to it, and then you've got to blow up all their assumptions and show the evidence. But when you can't even start because their assumptions have put your faith in Christ in something over here that's completely personal to you or that's the kind of thing we can't even talk about, you've got nowhere to go with the gospel. And I think so many people are like that now. So many people. The fact is that faith in Christ, believing in God and what he has done through Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb is the only way to have the righteousness of God. Without the righteousness of God, there is only death and hell. That is a message that has to be preached. And it can only be preached if a person's willing to listen. And they're only going to be willing to listen if you can show them that their assumptions 
about truth and knowledge are incorrect. So they have to deal with you so that you can give them a reason for the hope that is in us. The elders of Acts Church want you to be equipped to help people to come to saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So pray for your neighbors. Pray for yourself that you might crash through barriers and march against the gates of hell with your brothers and sisters in Christ to bring the gospel to people. This is what 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 says. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is what they're doing. They're believing, as we read in Romans 1, that they're wise while being foolish. They're believing that they can suppress the gospel and actually be smarter than you. You, they just say, are the one who's dumb. And they're the one who's smart. Because they believe the things that are popular and you believe what's unpopular. Well, let me tell you something. The gospel will always be unpopular in a fallen world. But it's going to be real popular when Jesus Christ comes back. I promise you that. And you need to get that message to them because we do not want them to die and go to hell. We want them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We want them to understand the truth. You have got to go blow these arguments up there. Nonsense. You have to stand in the street and shout, the emperor has no clothes. The emperor has no clothes. Because the things they believe are nonsense. And we need them to understand the truth. So pray. Pray that you'll have the opportunity to bring the gospel to your neighbors. Pray that God will give you wisdom, that you will not accept the assumptions of the critics of the gospel. And please pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ that the same will happen for them as we as a church are going out into the world and bringing the gospel. We have a mission and we have the truth. Let's pray.